This morning we are reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once more this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word. We acknowledge that you are the potter and we are the clay, and we ask that this morning you would exert just the right amount of pressure in just the right places to continue to shape us and deform us. We pray that you would do so lovingly, kindly, gently, and ultimately for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I've had it a few times, sitting down with family and, and going through boxes of old photos and you know, someone in your family pulls out a photo and they say, I, I don't remember when you took this photo. It, it's me, but I never owned polka dot uh, flare pants or bell bottoms or whatever. And you're like, no, you know what? That's not you. That's your Aunt Denise. Something like that. Uh, it happened with my son, Jake. We were looking through old boxes of photos from my family and he pulled out one that looked like him and Find out it's my brother Josh when they were the same age. Or you know, maybe you find an old picture of granddad and you realize, holy cow, I look just like granddad. And then you get real depressed because you realize what granddad looks like now and you know that you know, that's your future and you're like, ugh. But this morning and for the next few weeks as we do this series on, on 1 Corinthians, I, and 2 Corinthians too, I hope we have a little bit of that experience. We're picking up an ancient document, right? 2,000 years old. And I hope we look at it and we can see a little bit of us. It, it, it is us. 
It's ancient, but it's relevant. It's not simply history that we're doing here. There's differences between the Corinthian church and us, but there are striking similarities, both positive and negative. The Corinthian church was a Gentile church, as opposed to some of the churches that Paul wrote to that were predominantly Jewish churches. So as a Gentile church, they were well accustomed, acclimated to their culture. Most of them for their, you know, a, Entire lives had grown up in the, in the pagan culture, and that was their culture. They knew the Greco-Roman culture of the day, and it was their culture. They were accustomed to it and adopted that worldview. But now they're Christians, and Paul's helping them understand what that means now, how they have to adjust their thinking about the world and about culture. They were a wealthy and prosperous city. Corinth was situated at the crossroads of major trade routes, both by sea and by land. And so they were a wealthy, prosperous city. Even if you were poor in Corinth, you were probably better off being poor in Corinth than poor in most other small towns. Corinth was a big, major metropolis. And the people of Corinth were fiercely independent, individualistic. Most of the population of Corinth were Roman freedmen. Uh, A freedman was just one step above a slave. People who had worked to earn uh, their freedom from slavery. Uh, When Rome repopulated, refounded, repopulated Corinth in 44 BC, they populated it with mostly freedmen who had a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. They had worked and they had earned their freedom and so they were fiercely independent. It was also a very pluralistic city. It was a crossroads, so lots of cultures met there. There was the Greek culture and the Roman culture, but there was also lots of people who had come up from northern Africa and from east or west Asia, like Asia Minor and further east than that. And then there was a large Jewish population as well. It was religiously pluralistic. You had the pagan rites and rituals, the Roman gods and the Greek gods. You had the uh, Eastern mystic religions, mystery religions, Judaism, and now Christianity. And it was known as a very sexually immoral city as well. Someone in the ancient world had coined the phrase to act like a Corinthian, to play the role of the Corinthian. It meant to be sexually immoral. One commentator described Corinth as New York City, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C., kind of all rolled up into one, and that's Corinth. But as we look at Corinth, the question that we need to ask is not, what was Paul saying to that ancient city? But what is God saying through Paul to us now? It's not about history, it's about theology and about relationship. How is God using this ancient word to shape us as his people now? As we look through these words that were read, and a little bit on each side of the words that were read, we glimpse into God's mind and heart and purpose for his church. This morning I want to focus on, on four affirmations that show us the unique nature of the church as an institution and as the people of God 
that gives us a, a, a glimpse not only into God's mind, but also our responses, our responsibilities to what God has called us to be as his church. And the first affirmation is that you, individually, and I'm talking corporately here, you belong to God. You belong to God. Paul starts his letter after introducing himself and explaining his bona fides. You know, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He refers to the church as the church of God. It's unique in Paul's letters to refer to the church that way. It's actually the opposite of how he refers to the church in Thessalonians. To the Thessalonian church, he says, to the church of Thessalonians in God. But here he's really emphasizing this group of people, this church, they belong to God. They are his possession. They are the church of God. And he goes on to reinforce that with some of the next, some of the words and the next phrases he uses. You are the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified, he says, in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Now, if you're reading your Bible, there might be a whole bunch of different words that are substituted in for what I just read. It might be sanctified. It might be called to be holy. It might be called saints. You're called to be saints. All all those words are, in essence, interchangeable. They, They come from the same root Greek word. And they mean that we're, we're called and we're, we're set apart by God and for God's purposes. So if you rewind to the Old Testament, you can read about things like holy utensils that were used in the sanctuary and in the temple. The word holy there doesn't mean morally pure, right? A utensil cannot be morally pure or impure. It meant that this holy utensil was set apart from common usage and set apart for usage in God's temple for God's purposes. In other words, you didn't use that spatula to go up and you know, flip the shrimp on the barbie. It was used only as God directed in service to him. Set apart, sanctified. And here Paul calls the church his sanctified, set apart, holy people. Just like he had called Israel his holy people. They were chosen by him for his purposes. Set apart from the rest of the world to accomplish something for God. He says you're you're called, you're sanctified, you're set apart to be saints. A lot of contemporary English versions don't use that word saints because I think there's a common misunderstanding of what sainthood means. In, you know, popular parlance, sainthood or being a saint means something very, very special, right? Reserved for a select few. Saint Patrick, Mother Teresa, Saint Benedict, these kind of people who are just otherworldly. But biblically, all of us are saints. We've all been sanctified by Christ, set apart from common things, set apart for him and his purposes. We affirm that each time we recite together or sing together the Apostles' Creed. We say, I believe in the holy, 
Catholic Church. It's the same word that Paul uses, holy. And I believe in the communion of saints. That's not those people in that small enclave far off, all huddled together. That's us, the communion of saints, connected together with all believers through all the ages. We belong to God. And the response, the proper response, is be who you are. Be who you are. How many of you as parents have, out of frustration, sometimes said to your teenager, are are you 12 or are you 2? Are you 14 or are you 4? Act like it. Act your age. Be who you are. Paul says here, and it, it gets a little obscured in our English translations because it's two different words in the English Bible here. But it's the same word in the Greek. It could be translated, you've been made saints and now you're called to be saints. Or you've been sanctified, so be sanctified. Or you've been made holy, so go be holy. Be who you are. When we sin, when we fall into and allow ourselves to remain in patterns of sin, where we aren't serving God's purposes, we are living inauthentically. We are living in disingenuous ways. We aren't being who we really are, because who we really are is saints in Jesus Christ. So be who you are. Now Paul is being very aspirational here with the Corinthians because this was not their strong suit. The Corinthian church, and if we're totally honest, even we ourselves, probably look more like the surrounding culture than we should. We're not as distinct as we should be. We need to the 21st century church, recover something of an ethic rooted, yes, in God's law, but in our unique identity, group identity, as God's people. To say we are Christians, and as God's holy people, we do this. This is how we live, and we don't do that. Like, if if you're from Boston... You hate the New York Yankees. That's what you do. If you're a Christian, you do these things. You live generously. You, you lead with love. And you don't do these things. You don't take each other and sue each other in court. You don't divide into factions and parties. You don't. We can't tolerate sexual immorality. And Paul addresses each of those in this letter as part of their kind of group identity, their group ethic. As saints, live like it. Not like the culture around you. Part of the essence of the church is that we are saints growing together, helping each other grow in sainthood. And God is glorified in that. He's glorified in turning sinners into saints. The second affirmation is that you, individually, and I'm talking corporately, 
are built, established, constructed, rooted, all of those verbs, in grace. Let me read just a couple verses that weren't read as part of the reading earlier by Lynn. Starting in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. For he will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He leads, as Paul does often in his letters, with thanksgiving. And he thanks God for the grace that has been given to the church at Corinth. Not the grace that they earned. That's a contradiction. You cannot earn grace. It is given. You can earn wages. You can earn rewards. You can earn trophies. You can earn merit badges and promotions. You cannot earn grace. He says it's been given to you. And he focuses on a particular expression of divine grace. Namely, spiritual gifts. He says, you have been blessed with spiritual gifts. You lack no spiritual gift. That's how God is building his church, through equipping his saints with spiritual gifts. What's interesting is that as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, it was the Corinthians' use or misuse of their spiritual gifts that was causing so much problem in the church. And yet, Paul still says, I thank God that he's given them to you. It's an expression of his abounding grace. You're misusing it. Stop. But still, thanks and praise be to God that he's given these gifts to you. Paul, in these verses that I just read, rehearses, even celebrates the achievements of God in the Corinthian church. Not the achievements of the Corinthians. He's celebrating the achievement, what God has done in and through them, not what they have done on their own. It is grace through and through. Paul later in the book will say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Don't be prideful in all these things that you have, in your wisdom, and your ability to speak and your gifts of tongues and healing. Those are things that God gave you. You don't boast about gifts. Here I think we have to be really careful when we talk about grace and how we respond to grace because it is really easy to fall into a debtor mentality where we try to pay God back. I am, I think, like most of us, we don't like to ask for help. We don't like to feel indebted to somebody. I will go out of my way. I'll carry a dresser upstairs on my back by myself before I'll ask for help. 
That changed when I had kids because that's why I had kids, you know, manual labor. But by and large, I don't like to ask for help. The tendency prior to being awakened by grace is to try to work and earn God's favor rather than turning to God and saying, I can't, I need your help. And the world offers a myriad of ways that you can try to earn God's favor. A thousand different plans to make yourself righteous and right in front of God. The problem is that all of our good deeds, the the prophet Isaiah says, are merely filthy rags. You can't earn God's grace. You can't earn his favor. But that tendency can sometimes carry you over into the Christian life where we've received grace, but now we feel like we need to pay it back. You've given such a good gift, God. Now I'm going to live my life to pay you back for it. That is the wrong kind of mentality. My family is semi-addicted to a TV sitcom that we... It's over now, so we can binge watch it, called The Big Bang Theory. Um, At least four of us. One of us is kind of snobby and thinks it's below him, but um, they will remain unnamed. One of my favorite characters in this sitcom is Sheldon. uh, And my wife cracks up all the time because she's like, he is just an exaggerated version of you. He's so quirky and so weird and so has no people skills at all. And in one of the episodes... The girl across the hall, Penny, gives Sheldon a gift. And Sheldon says, oh, Penny, I know you thought you were being generous, but the foundation of gift giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. (laughs) Laugh. He's saying what we do. We've received from God. Now, God, I got, I got to repay it. God doesn't want you to pay him back. The right response is to be grateful. To say thank you. To embrace that grace. And to lean into it more and say, I need more. Give me more. Any attempt that we muster to try and repay it is doomed to failure because all our good deeds rely on more and more grace. It's God's grace that prepares the good deeds for us to do. It's God's grace that enables us to do them. So the more we try to repay God, the more deeper the more deeper, the deeper in debt we get to God's grace. Stop trying to repay it. Just embrace it and lean into it. Say, give me more. Give me more. That's what the Apostle Paul says here. He doesn't say, now that you've received grace, hold firm to the end. He says, God will establish you firmly to the end. God is faithful. He'll do it. Lean into that grace. Receive it and ask for more of it. God is glorified in our reliance on his grace and on his gifts. The third affirmation, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because I feel like I've said a lot about this over the last six months to a year, and we're going to come back to it in a couple weeks. The third affirmation is that you are one body in Christ. There is a profound unity 
to the body of Christ. Paul makes an appeal. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. But that appeal is grounded in a reality that we are one body. Not just those of us in the room, but the church global. We are one body, the body of Christ. Paul begins the letter by referring to the church of God in Corinth. In reality, there was multiple churches that met throughout the city of Corinth in people's homes. But they still constituted one church in Christ. The appeal to be united is actually a a surgical term used about mending bones. Be together, be be healed and mended together as one. The, The divisions and the squabbling, the partisanship, that doesn't match reality. You're dividing and arguing over insignificancies. When the profound reality is there is one church and you are the body of Christ. Some were being loyal to Paul. He was, after all, the one that founded the church in Corinth. Others were being more loyal to Apollos. And there is no indication that Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and certainly not Christ, were to blame for this division. None of them wanted it. But some were being more Loyal to Paulus. I follow Apollos. Probably because Paul was seen as insufficient rhetorically. He wasn't a great speaker. And he didn't accept money, so how good could he be? Apollos. I'm, I'm, I'm putting all my chips on him. Or Cephas. You know, he was the one that Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church. I'm with Cephas. And others, maybe in a kind of feigned self-righteousness, said, nah, I'm with Christ. You're all with Christ. Paul wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized into Paul's name. There is one body in Christ. Embrace that. Here the differences weren't over doctrinal issues. Paul, in this letter, actually encourages some division. Heretics from truth good teachers, the sexually immoral brother, you need to set them outside in church discipline. It's not about that. But he appeals to them, don't let these silly, trivial things divide you. Don't let them divide you. We're not of the Calvinist or the Wesleyan party. We're Christ's. We're not the Republicans or the Democrats. We're Christ's body, one in him. That doesn't mean we all agree When he refers to the same mind, what I think he means is, while you disagree on these things, be of the same mind that you won't let those things divide you. And God is glorified. And our unity, especially our unity in the midst of diversity, it's beautiful. The fourth and final affirmation is that you, you're going to get sick of me saying this, individually and corporately, are defined by the cross. We've been established and are defined by a message that is absolute folly. 
to the outside world. Uh, Archaeologists uncovered an ancient piece of graffiti dating back to somewhere between the first and the third centuries in Rome. And and it's a picture of a man worshiping a figure that is crucified on a cross. And it has a human body and an ass's head, the head of a donkey. And the graffiti reads, Alexamanos worships his God. It was meant to mock the Christians that were worshiping a crucified Messiah because that is stupid. Who does that? The message of the cross is folly. But we will, we must always be defined by that foolish, foolish message. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, a crucified Savior. Individually and corporately, we face temptations in this regard. In one way, we are very different than the Corinthian church. Paul, at the end of chapter 1, says, Who among you was wise in the minds of the world. Who among you was influential? Who among you was rich? Who among you was powerful? I don't think he would say that to this group here. Because in the eyes of the world, a lot of us in this room are fairly influential, are fairly wise, have PhDs, lead you know, companies. Uh, but the temptation is Because the world sees us and because we see ourselves as wise, we desire the world to acknowledge our intellect, our wisdom, our influence, our status. But the world sees and has always seen Christians as fools who embrace a ridiculous message. And so there's the temptation individually to distance ourselves from that scandal the scandal of the cross, from the gospel, from the uniqueness of Christ, the narrowness of Christ, so to win the acclaim or to keep the acclaim of the world. We can't do it. You cannot set aside the message of the cross. Corporately, Paul says to this Corinthians, to this church, Greeks are looking for wisdom. Jews want signs and wonders, miracles. If he was writing to us today, I think he would say, the culture around you, they they want entertainment. Don't give them the gimmicks. You have something more important. The world around you wants you to be relevant. Don't just jump on board with the next hashtag activist movement. You have something important. It's not wrong to be entertaining. It's not wrong to be active. But that's not our message. The world wants charismatic leaders and the evangelical church. Our church has, the movement has been defined by personality. 
No one church growth gurus would tell you who are wise in the ways of the world wants to hear about sin or wrath or judgment or holiness. Those are real buzzkill kind of words. But apart from those things, the cross makes no sense. Apart from those things, the cross has been emptied of its power and it's a man dying. Worldly wisdom would say, stop talking about the cross. Stop preaching altogether. A picture is worth a thousand words. But we are established, we are defined by the message of the cross that is proclaimed. And our response, what we're called to do, is trust. Trust that God will preserve and advance his church. Not our church, his church. By his means. The preaching of his wisdom. Namely the cross. Seems like foolishness to the world. But he is glorified when the church grows by embracing this foolishness. Not by adopting the next fad, but by keeping the message of the cross central. I think this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it. An understanding of the church that does not center on Christ and him crucified is DOA. It is dead on arrival. Because he is our righteousness. He is our redemption. He is the wisdom of God for us. Our response, our response, Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in this. Boast in the Lord. Not in our gifts, not in our wisdom, in the Lord. Through these passages, this passage we've seen, God's heart, his mind for the church, our responsibility is to embrace that and to live as his saints, to embrace his grace, to be firmly and deeply rooted in the message of the cross. And in all of that, he is the one who gets the glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for all the ways that your grace shows up to us. It is first and foremost in the gift of your son and his humbling himself to death, yes, even death on the cross. But that is not the end of the grace you give us. By your grace, you call us. By your grace, you preserve us. By your grace, you give us gifts. By your grace, you privilege us with being included in your body, the church. And give us a purpose. Give us a meaning. Father, we pray that we would embrace this grace and lean into it ever thankful, ever giving you the praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen.